Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. This is Pop Life from WAER. I'm Kendall Phillips, and I might be being a bit overly optimistic, but life does seem to be slowly getting back to something like normal. While COVID remains a concern, so hey, stay safe out there, people are returning to many of the collective activities that we used to enjoy, including live music. The long COVID pause was pretty rough on us music fans, but what was it like for the bands themselves? Was COVID a period of great difficulty, of renewed creativity, of extended frustration? And what is it like to finally be getting back out on the road? Here to give us the musician's point of view are Grant Widmer and Ted Joyner, who together formed the band Generationals and are heading out on the road this fall in support of their new album, Heatherhead. Ted and Grant, welcome to Pop Life. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having us. Thrilled to have you. Being, like I said, big fan of your work. Really enjoyed everything you've done. But it has been a little bit of a, of a brief period. I believe the last album was out in 2019, so we've had a bit of a pause. So I guess I'll start with the, the, the lead-in question here. What was COVID like for the two of you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, probably uh, roughly similar to a lot of people. Um, we happened to come off tour really, really, like right as lockdown was starting, strangely. So we just kind of dove back into the studio to write and record and kind of stayed there for quite a bit. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of uh, staying at home and wondering what uh, the future held. Was it hard to collaborate during that time? Because I know you two write together and you, you've been together for quite some time. Was it hard to do that during lockdown or was that an easy, was it a better process to be creative when you're kind of forced to not do a lot of other things? Yeah, I was going to say that. I think it, it might have actually helped in the sense that it really did clear out a lot of the other distractions and things in life that can sometimes get in the way or, or pull attention away from that task. Um, and we really just didn't have anything. I mean, we, we had just finished an entire touring cycle and, um, you know, nobody was really expecting and us to do anything else at that moment. So we kind of had our plates cleared and that did help us to really focus on it and start compiling another kind of, yeah, um, group of songs and ideas that we have been going through ever since and trying to um, develop and we still are. So um, I'll take it as, you know, it was a horrible thing and it still is for many people um, just to have to deal with COVID, but we we did find a silver lining, I think, in that we found some some time and some clarity of purpose to kind of, uh, yeah, focus on making music. So I'm curious, what is the writing process like for you two? I've talked to, we've had some you know songwriters on the show before, but both of you, as I understand, are involved in the writing process. So how does that happen? Where does it start? How do you kick things back and forth? Like, what is that like for generationals? A bit of both, because... We, we each like working, you know, alone or like kind of concepting alone. Um, and historically, it's it's kind of like he has his ideas that are kind of percolating and stacking up and I have mine. And at some point, we start bringing them together and sharing them together. And uh, to 
just different degrees they they then start to intermingle and cross pollinate and inform each other and sometimes like he has a very fully formed idea and he just needs like certain feedback sometimes we will share stuff with each other that's just very unformed and it, it kind of comes together collaboratively like each each song it kind of is it's on its own weird journey but uh it is essentially a lot of like aloneness and then togetherness and then aloneness you know what i mean <laughs> kind of like a back and forth that's interesting. What what do you think the other person provides? I'm thinking about recently I heard Paul McCartney interviewed talking about the, the infamous Lennon-McCartney, you know, their incredible collaborative uh, pairing. And uh, he said often like he would bring a sort of sunny, optimistic voice and Lennon would bring this kind of more cynical voice and that together those kind of created the Beatles sound. Is there some kind of uh, dialectical tension in generationals between the two of you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's got to be. I, I, I don't know. I hesitate to dive too deep into it. it uh, but I mean, I think we are obviously different enough in our sort of, I don't know, philosophies and outlooks and taste to where we do inform each other's thing. But then I think we're, we're also we, we have enough in common, enough like common ground to where, you know, that's that it's all kind of built on. So it's, it's got to be some of both. But Grant, go ahead. I, w- I would say just on a personality basis and <laughs> I appreciate that you were like probably not going to go there, but I think of myself <laughs> as maybe more cynical and like Ted mm. has a better, um, as better adjusted in general. And like, I usually feel better about things and, and more, um, I don't know, more, more connected to like evenness after I've talked to Ted, I think he has a way of kind of, I don't know, making things feel better. Uh, so there probably is some dichotomy there where like musically that manifests itself somehow, but there's something about the combination of the two that, that will eventually catalyze into what is essentially us and the combination of us that, I don't know. So it's, it's kind of hard to describe it when people say, well, describe your music (laughs) or your, your band. It's, it's so difficult to like, to say that. I think for, for most artists, it's hard to like really sum that up succinctly, but, uh, but I, yeah, I think there's something about the combination of personalities um, that, you know, I don't know, alchemizes into something that we can at least call our own. In terms of process, maybe I'll start with you, Grant. Here, um, where does a song idea come from? Is it a, is it a, a, a lyric? Is it a word? Is it a sound? Is it a, a melody? What, where does it start for you? Or is there a particular place it usually starts? Yeah, uh, for me, it's usually like a little um it's a little like bite sized piece of music like i'm talking about i think and over time that's gotten shorter and shorter i used mm. to try to i used to not think i really had a song idea until it was you know a minute or two long and now the longer i go i feel like the new approach i've really hit on that i like a lot is i'll try to find a piece of music that's it can it can be 5 seconds um mm. and i'll just bank like dozens of those, maybe 20 or 30 of those in, in a folder um, and not overthink them and try to just let them live in that very kind of early crystal moment where the idea has not been sweat over very much. It's just very new. And, and um, there's a, you know, that, that initial spark is still visible in them. And then don't, I don't try to overwork them or, or over massage them into anything at that point. I'll just kind of bank them. And then, when Ted and I are together or we have a chance to either ideally be together in the same room or 
if not that, then to exchange those ideas over email or something. Then getting the feedback, seeing what what reaction that inspires in Ted will kind of help me figure out if there's an idea there worth worth uh, chasing. How about for you, Ted? Where does it start for you? Is it uh, is it also just a little snippet of a melody, or is it a lyric, or where, where does the songwriting process start? You know, it, it it it's it's roughly what what he described. I mean, it, it's just you you come in here. I mean, I'm in the studio right now, and you come in here, you just start making noises, whichever you know, however you can. Usually, kind of like a beat, and just trying to find some chords maybe that work over something until something sounds like maybe it's an idea. Um, it starts from just such a exceedingly vague place. And then, especially lately, what I tend to do is just build up tons and tons of those, of like like Grant was saying, you know, like a little snippet or a little sketch of something like, could these chords work? I mean, we've all heard the same chord progressions. It's like kind of, can you hear something new in all the same sort of building blocks that you've always known about? And, and, but, and then sometimes it'll be inspired by just like a weird sound you might find on a keyboard or it can kind of start anywhere, but yeah, usually with something musical and then that mutate, that finds its way into a melody, which then finds its way into some words that hopefully make sense. But uh, first and foremost, I, I don't know, it just has to sound good. Hmm. So I'm curious about that. I'm reading the paper about the Ed Sheeran trial right now, accused of plagiarizing Marvin Gaye. I am sure for myself, who have no talent at all, if I was forced to write a song, I would end up writing Hey Jude, and I'd just change the lyrics to Hey Dude or something. Do you, do you mm -hmm. sometimes find yourself like finding a chord progression? You say, that sounds really good, that sounds really good. Oh, wait, I just wrote someone else's song? Or How do you know you're finding something that is at least different or unique or your voice? That's a great um, question. Yeah, that is a great question. I mean, like, I don't know, you, uh, you just stay searching. I mean, it, it's a never ending. I thought I would, you know, I thought I would have figured it all out at some point. But the fact that it remains mysterious, you're, you're, you're ever in a place of searching. And when you hit on something that sounds great, oftentimes, yeah, you do go, man, I hope that isn't something that I just heard. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's so, so many songs that you love are probably like the same three chords, you know what I mean? But just there's something about how that melody or harmony or structure of it is all interacting to where it, it is its own thing in that particular instance. Um, it's a lot of us painting with the same colors, but it's like you finding your own, your own take on it, I guess. Um, and I, I would say specifically on the point of that, the Ed Sheeran suit, and I'm specifically thinking of the, uh, the blurred lines lawsuit where the Marvin Gaye estate sued, uh, Robin Thicke and Pharrell, like that, that was, I mean, it's that, like to say nothing of that song specifically in the, the case, it, it just was so like, I feel like that I, there's just books to be written about that specific case mm -hmm. because the whole, like the goalposts were moved so far in terms of like what constitutes, um, you know, a ripoff in a sense, like it had, it had been something before that was more, defined about like okay this amount of notes over this amount of time and you know like beat like a drum beat is not something that can be copywritten or uh, a chord progression but a melody can be and it's like kind of ineffable but there's a certain standard that was more or less statable whereas what the the change that came in or the precedent that was set with the the blurred lines case changed it to so much of a more hazy like they basically said, okay, the melody is not exactly the same. 
you know, the, the chord progression is not exactly the same, but the vibe essentially that you created was lifted from Marvin, a Marvin Gaye song. And that I guess it was a jury. I'm, I'm assuming it was a jury that um, bought that argument and like awarded a huge um, sum to the Marvin Gaye estate. It just like that, I think struck fear into my heart into so many, I don't know. Just it, It's just such a, that's such a, it's such it's such a weird like precedent to set because there are so many instances where an idea, whether it's a movie or you know, so many creative ideas are built on the back or on the the influence of another piece of art that like it just becomes so silly to try to say that like if you almost just like whiff catch a whiff of another piece of art that's like living in the same universe like that that can come you know that that can be your undoing if they want to you know if that song or that movie or whatever that idea visually got got too big or big enough and you could basically be getting a knock on the door to like get your affairs in order because <laughs> they're gonna come and get you <laughs> um, music police are here <laughs> so, yeah right right um so i mean i get it and i, I you know I'm, I'm fairly familiar with like the the specific um song of ed sheeran that is like in question there and i I get that but i mean come on like there's so all the pop songs that we know and love are basically a handful of chord progressions with you know variations baked into like the minute edge details of like how they're put forward and if you really wanted to drill down like you could make a case for so many songs being interpolations that are like legally now actionable it just because it feels like it's just become completely, um, you know, a complete uh, quicksand of of what what's yours, what's theirs, or it really just I think it it, it points to a lot of the this, this silliness of the basically the basic concept of like intellectual property as it pertains to music writing. Um, it's a fairly new like regime as it goes i think for like all of history people were always just building on and building variations on existing songs and existing you know um stories or whatever and now you try to just call time at some point and go oh, no that's all codified <laughs> intellectual property now and it cannot be varied upon anymore very bizarre um so who knows but yeah you're right like there are tons of times when we're writing something and we will, yeah, start to get a feeling that like, oh, maybe this is running a little bit too close to this Beatles song or something. And we have to like actively steer it in another direction or a lot of times just spike it because we're just afraid that it will come off as being like too close to something else. So fraught territory for sure. But I guess that's just where we are with it. Yeah, it's unfortunate because so much of music seems to be not only genre, but also influences. The people that you listen to should be feeding into your music. Speaking of which, then, I'm curious um, for you, Ted and Grant, thinking a little bit about your musical influence, I always like to ask this question of musicians, and I'll start with Ted here. Um, do you remember the first band that you really felt was your band? That first music you heard and said, yeah, those, that I get that. That is music that gets me. Who was that first band for you that was really kind of close to your heart? I mean, there's a really easy answer, and it's it's not very revolutionary, but it's, I mean, the Beatles, like seeing mm. the movie Hard Day's Night when I was probably about 10 or 11, um, 
so there's something about seeing them too, you know, like seeing like their personalities, but also like the fact that they were like this gang and they all hung out together and like, and then played music. Um, so I don't know. That's not a very interesting, I mean, prior to that, I don't know if you remember, but the Ninja Turtles actually had a band and they went on tour. Yes. Uh, yes. This so was an important moment. Pre-Beatles, I would say the Ninja Turtles specifically, like they're coming out of their shells tour. Um, but then, yeah, the Beatles. I, I don't know. I, I wish I had. I wish I had anything cooler to offer in that regard. But you know, I I think it starts for a lot of people with the Beatles. But, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm. I gotta go with. I had. I my dad gave me a tape of, of Michael Jackson when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, and uh, that became an obsession and just kind of like, constantly, playing that on repeat. Um. I don't know. I mean, it, it's not really a band, but I think that was yeah. just as as this as a musical sort of piece and musical artist that just shot through my kind of consciousness and made everything feel um, heightened and like electric and like you just couldn't wait to get home from school and put your headphones back on and listen to that. Like that was that was what it was for me. So somewhere between the Beatles, Michael Jackson, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there in the middle of that <laughs> Venn diagram is Generationals. Now, I know another influence, I'm guessing, on your band is that you are a New Orleans-based band. So can you talk about how New Orleans has influenced your sound? Grant, how about you? Why don't we start there? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a funny thing because we don't sound like New Orleans. Um, <laughs> and we, we kind of are familiar with the new Orleans sound and are like appreciators of it. Um, I mean, gosh, like I remember growing up that there's the, it's actually happening right now, but like the, the jazz and heritage festival is um, a big deal in new Orleans. And for a lot of people growing up in new Orleans, that might be your first experience like seeing live music. And it was for me. Um, so going to jazz fest and getting to see Dr. John and um, the Neville brothers and people like that, like really, embodying like centuries of new orleans musical heritage um i never felt like i wanted to chase that and try to like because the thing is like it's built on just an insane amount of talent like performance wise and i i, I don't i don't know I, I just never felt like that was going to be where i found a niche to like make myself or to express myself musically to be like a great pianist or a great um horn player or something so i think i was more content to kind of enjoy that and to appreciate that as like a fan and as someone who would go as a teenager to go see the funky meters um but when it came time to like make music or try to try to you know when ted and i were first messing around with cassette four tracks and stuff it was more about like writing trying to find succinct ideas with writing that didn't require us necessarily to be like profoundly great instrumentalists or singers or whatever. Um, so it's really more of a, just like an appreciation of it. And like the fact that the city is so steeped in it. And so, so, so much music just kind of seeps through the city and, and you can just, you know, go out and walk around on the street and hear brass bands playing and stuff. I think just gave me an appreciation for live music and, and, and for the history of the city and everything. But uh, it, I knew that I didn't have what it, what it took to be like a great instrumentalist in the way that 
I think New Orleans um, music kind of really is famous for and like requires. So I had to kind of draw a line there, but uh, I don't know. What do you think, Ted? No, I, I would agree with all that. that. That That's kind of been my story as well. Now you two, as I understand it, were part of a band before you became generationals, the Eames era. Uh, so, and I, as I understand it, the the other members of the band sort of decided at some point that they were going to kind of call it quits. Um, Ted, was was that a moment where you thought, should I call this quits as well? I mean, it seems strange to me if if all if the members of the band are all leaving, like it it would be a very strange moment to be the last one left in the the tour bus, wondering if we should go on. What was that? What was that moment like for you, Ted? Uh, no, that was, you're right on it. That was a really important moment because everything was welling up inside me. They're like, yes, I, I, I really, I think I'm deciding more definitively that I do want to pursue <laughs> this with my life. And then to hear them at the same time go, oh no, I'm, it, I'm just definitely confirmed for me that like, I would rather move on and do other things. I was like, <laughs> so we were, the fact that we were moving in opposite directions and I mean, God bless them. Like it was, it, that is a very smart <laughs> career move in life. Um, to get away from music, but I, it was, it had, it, because it was right at the same moment that I was like, no, I, I think if we gave this another shot, if we really like using everything we've learned to like have, you know, get this band as far as it, it had gotten, I, I think we can, we can push this further. And, and it was right at that time, Grant and I, yeah, we started concepting like, okay, well, it's going to be a new project and it's just the two of us. But yeah, no, that was, that was a big moment. Um, still all good friends with all those people, love them to death. Um, and it was a great, it was, a, 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 like I said, a lot was learned trying to get that first band, you know, in college, like off the ground. Um, yeah, it was a very important time in my life. No, I'm curious. I would agree. I, I, I would echo that. Like it, it does kind of force you to make an affirmative decision. Like hmm. the momentum of being in something that just has, you know, it's kind of going on its own rate. You're just kind of along with it kind of removes you don't have to like sign up for it every day. It's just like, okay, well, that's what I'm doing. But when it dissolves, you really are at a, a fork in the road where like you can, you have to, if you want to do something more, you have to affirmatively sign up for it, knowing what it kind of requires of you. And um, to do that the way we did in that moment, I felt like was, I don't know, it kind of hit us at an important moment in our lives to just be like, okay, we are going to like go back into this from scratch, knowing what, you know, knowing what we know now. Um, but we're going to like make this affirmative decision to kind of go back in and start on a, a debut album. I don't know. It was an important decision. I think for both of us, was there a plan B for you, Grant? Was there like a, okay, if everyone else bails, maybe I should go be what, what would, was there a plan B if, if music didn't work out? I mean, the truth is that like, in order to save up the money that we um, that we did in order to like buy a van when we got started and to record the first album that we recorded, we both got jobs in the film industry in New Orleans. Um, and over the course of a few years, you know, I kind of worked my way up into where I have friends who, you know, in like the art department who would hire me and stuff. So I guess in the back of my head, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's a, a job like people do that and it's decent and it's you know it's creative in its way so i guess in the back of my head i thought like, i could throw my hat back into that ring and try to and I, I still have friends in that world who do very well and do very cool creative projects and work on great movies so i don't know maybe i would have tried to get somewhere in that in that world but no hopefully yeah 
luckily I haven't had to um, <laughs> try my hand as a uh, as a props assistant, which is what my job was. How about you, Ted? Was it mu- mu- movie industry was your backup plan, or was it something else you thought if the music thing doesn't work out, you would do? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it was like plan A, plan plan 1A, which was just like in service of the main plan, which is like, I think if we work in movies, it, it can kind of like buy us time and, and earn us some money to, in service of this primary dream, which was the getting another uh, music project launched. Um. And it was a fun job to have. I mean, I really enjoyed it. And then when you're in that job, you realize like, oh, a lot of people have like, you know, sometimes it attracts like people in bands and stuff, you know, um, where they're doing that to to serve their music dream, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. I think I think there are a lot of folks that want to be an artist. But what I love about your story is that you all were at a moment where you really could have taken the easier route and you decided quite intentionally that, no, you were going to stay with this this journey. And I, one more question, if I could, about just sort of the journey of the band before we turn to, to the new album and what you're doing now. Uh, as I understand, you worked with uh, Richard Swift, uh, who, who is a well-known producer and collaborator with a lot of bands. I think it was on your album, Alex. Um, was there anything that Richard Swift kind of brought to you in that process? Was that an important relationship? Big time. Yeah. Yeah, Grant, go ahead. Yeah, I, I I always think about our time with Richard Swift. Um, I would say he is probably next to Daniel Black, who is the other producer that we've mainly worked with. Uh, Richard Swift is the biggest influence that we've had. Um, he specifically, like, he had an ability to uh, embrace, like, low-quality like low fidelity Mm -hmm. music. And I I remember that was, you know, coming up, you're trying to, you start getting better at recording your own stuff, but you're always kind of self-conscious about, um, does it sound good enough? Is this like, you know, compared to, you know, you start comparing yourself to peers and and other records that you like and questioning like, or this imposter syndrome kind of thing happens where you're like, okay, but I just made this in my home studio. Like, everybody's going to find out that I'm not a pro recording engineer and that I'm going to get kicked out. Right. Like (laughs) I just remember walking around with this like real kind of, um, I don't know, inferiority complex about my stuff, not sounding good enough. And then of course we were, you know, in parallel fans of Richard Swift and what he was doing without really knowing him got up to his studio after hiring him to produce that album for us. And I think, you know, like within a day or two of being around him, he would just say like, yeah, I, I didn't, you know, <laughs> I remember he said, um, he started to give us this kind of like perfunctory tour of his gear and like kind of point to the stuff he had such as it was. And he could tell that we were like not geeking out on it. And <laughs> he, uh, he was like, clocking the fact that we weren't like asking him all the details about all of his gear just because like we didn't really know or care that much we just kind of liked what he did and he was like oh okay so you don't like you don't care about this like outboard gear or anything and we were like no i mean it's cool like yeah looks good and he was like okay cool because a lot of people the first time they come here they all they want to do is like see what gear i have to kind of see if i know enough to like you know, be a good engineer. And he was like, yeah, I didn't go to recording college or anything. I don't know anything about recording from any kind of formal sources. I just 
do like what sounds good to me and what I think sounds good. And also Richard was locally in the town where he lives, Cottage Grove, Oregon. He would do like a 45s DJ set periodically, Hmm. just at like the local dive. And he had boxes of records, like just hanging, like lying around all, all over the place in his studio. And he would just go like, yeah, like these albums, I love them. I love these singles. I love how they sound. And they were recorded with garbage equipment mm. with by artists who didn't have it, any money or like budget for recording. And he was able to, you know, like, m- like uh, marry that idea to his own recording and say like, yeah, it's not about the quality. It's not about the fidelity per se. It's about the feel and the idea. And you can actually embrace and lean into low quality recording techniques or not fussing over microphones too much. Um, and if you got a good enough idea and a good enough feel for how to perform a part or how to um, record something, then you can actually embrace the, the lack of quality and that will become, you can turn that into an asset and as like, as a fingerprint of your, your sound that will be, um, you know, something you're, you're proud of. And, looking through his catalog and like the songs of his that I like the best that it's not because they're pristinely recorded in the way that, you know, you might find in a high end studio, but it's because his personality was like coming through in those in more lo-fi techniques. And he kind of leaned more personality forward and more kind of vibe forward um, at the expense of fussing a lot over having like a really expensive microphone closet or whatever. And so I still carry that with me all the time when mm. we're recording or writing a demo. I'm, I'm, I'm empowered to keep, for instance, like a take that I laid down as a demo um, with, you know, just whatever microphone happened to be set up. I, you know, historically, I might have been bashful about that and, and tried to delete it or, or replace it with a better mic part. But now I'll hear Richard in my head or think about his technique uh, or lack of technique and feel empowered to keep the, the, the part that I would have thought was too junky or too raspy or whatever, because it's got more personality and that's what you actually want in the, in the track more than pristinity. Hmm. It's interesting. I know Swift worked with you two and, and the shins and Guster and fleet foxes. So Ted, are, were there other of those lo-fi bands of that era or even now that you sort of felt a vibe with that you sort of thought, yeah, we're kind of in the same conversation with some of these other bands of that era? Um, I don't know. I mean, shins, I don't know. I, I, I might be flattering myself <laughs> to say any of that. I mean, I, I, I swift, I mean, he had a great spirit. I mean, like my one, memories i remember he like we would be listening back we'd be in the studio and like listening back to the mix and i'd look over to him and he would be painting hmm. you know like painting out the picture like and, and i it just struck me that like oh he's just unending he's just free-flowing creativity all the time um and i was just really struck by that like for him he just was very free creative spirit um i think i would have been like well you're working on music or okay or you're painting and doing visual art for him it was just all one flowing, you know, continuum of just creative output. Yeah, very, very sad loss for the artistic community. But uh, fortunately, the artistry goes on. And for you all, it is the new album, Heatherhead. So I'm wondering, Ted, what do you think of Heatherhead? What is what is that adding to the generational story? What what do you what do you how has your sound or your story evolved here? 
I don't know. I think we're getting closer and closer to like a true, fully pure statement of hmm. what could be considered. I don't know, like a, a generational sound. I think, yeah, we're we in working with Nick Krill on this one, who is, is a, a longtime hero of ours. Um, he helped us kind of get these songs to a place that just feel like kind of like what we're what, like the record we've been trying to make like this whole time. I mean, I think I've said that before, but it really does feel true. I'm really happy with how it came out. Nick was a huge part of that. We had some other collaborators in there and um, I'm very much looking forward to playing it out loud for people in, you know, <laughs> out in the world. Grant, how about you? What do you think uh, Heatherhead is adding to the gen? Are you getting closer to that pure generational sound? I, I mean, I feel like I'm on the record. I've already said it. it's the the kind of thesis statement of what hmm. we set out to do at the beginning. Um, and I think, yeah, we've been able to get that far because we have like, I don't know, survived long enough to find our writing voices and to be like kind of more confident and leaning into what it is that kind of makes us different and makes us who we are um, combined with being, yeah, just having been writing songs for as many years as we have. And um, so like, I don't know, just on, on several different fronts, we're more confident in ourselves, more comfortable with who we are and also have a better sense of how to put our skills like to the task. Um, mar married with a collaboration with Nick Krill, who was so excellent at, at getting the best out of us and, and like kind of really like shepherding a big group of songs into the best of the best. And so, yeah, to me, it, it is the culmination or kind of thesis of like what the idea of the band was to start from. Don't ask me where that leaves us to go next. I guess we'll figure <laughs> that out later. But, uh, um, but yeah, I think this is like, this is the clearest kind of distillation of what we're setting out to do. And for me, that is clarifying because it's like, you can play this for somebody and if they don't like it, then like they just are not meant to be a fan of this band. But if you're at all open to it or in, into it, then like you're getting the purest uncut version of like kind of what we're putting out or what we think is close, you know, closest to the source of our creativity. And um, yeah, you get a clear, answer for yourself or anybody who listens to this about whether or not you know we are somebody that you're potentially into musically well i can say that the singles i've heard coming out on spotify so far seem amazing and a great extension of what you all have been doing so far i am curious you're getting ready to head out on the road in support of the new album is that exciting a little anxiety producing what's it like to be planning a big tour after a fairly long layoff Grant, definitely mixed feelings um because we haven't done it since 2020 we haven't like we we had our last booked show on the the day that you know what was it uh, march 12th like 2020 so we have not had a tour or a show in the, in the COVID era which definitely you know is somewhat um yeah anxiety causing because of course you want people to stay healthy and um you know we're we're somewhat um, responsible for like the people that are coming out and touring with mm. us and crew and other musicians and stuff. And so there's, there's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of like, I want to keep us all safe and, and healthy as we can be. Um, but yeah, at the same time, extremely excited to get back on the stage. I was doing the math earlier today and this is <clears throat> the longest stretch that we've gone without playing a show ever. Like wow. since we were 
before we were in any bands um itching like very itchy to get back out there and like do this thing that i think we think of as so core to like the project that we're working on um and it feels like a kind of a, a whole like a missing you know part of our our creative life that's just not there and hasn't been there for a few years and very much eager to get out and like kind of shake the rust off and feel that feeling again mm. um what about you ted i mean anxiety <laughs> and excitement probably in equal measure i guess the anxiety is helping fuel the excitement i mean i uh i'm very excited to be getting back out there well i can speak for all of your fans to say we are excited to have you back out there excited to finally get the full album heatherhead out there uh now ted and grant i should tell you most bands have that one big hit that they used in their show and here at pop life our big hit is a game we call the fast five so i'm going to ask you uh five music related questions we'll go back and forth between the two of you last question i'll give to both of you uh and i'm going to give you either or questions and ask you to follow your instinct and pick your favorite answer starting with you ted with my one non-musical question ted if you had to live out the rest of your life in one 1980s sci-fi film would it be total recall or robocop Oh my God. <laughs> um, what a nightmare. <laughs> I would say uh, total recall. I think it's because you could get blue skies on Mars. So that makes it much, much better. Second yeah, question is for yeah, you. Chris. Like there's some amount of hope there. Robocop. Oh my God. Robocop. I watched that at too young an age. <laughs> I think we were all scarred by some of those 80 films. So second question is to you, Grant, if you could sit down for a cup of coffee with one late legendary songwriter, would it be John Lennon or Kurt Cobain? Wow. Um, gosh, that is a great one. Uh, I guess I'd have to go with Kurt. Um, I feel like I have just grown up, um, I don't know, with so much kind of Beatles content and and watched so much of their stuff already. I feel like I would already basically know what John Lennon mm. would say to anything I had to ask him. Um, and also, I'm just kind of, I don't want to talk to John Lennon right now. He and I are on the outs. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> he's a genius, but like, Kurt, uh, yeah, it would be, I would be fascinated. Also, he didn't, you know, he didn't live as long. So um, I think John Lennon made it to 40. Kurt died at 27. So yeah, I think there were a lot more, there was a lot more kind of left to be said, I think, for Kurt. And I would certainly, as far as like, yeah, as we were talking about earlier, kind of formative artists that really um, felt like, I don't know, that really crystallized, I don't know, my appreciation for music and what it was like to be in a band or whatever. Kurt Cobain was um, very uh, influential to me in that regard. So I would, yeah, I would think I would, I would really enjoy to sit down with Kurt and kind of ask him, talk to him for a little while. I'm going to go with Kurt. Yeah. I think that's a, certainly the voice of a generation and can't go wrong with that. So question number three is for you, Ted, uh, your album has a, has a title uh, track titled Spinoza. So which is most likely to be the next philosopher-inspired song from Generationals? Would it be the Schopenhauer Shuffle or the Hume Hustle? What, what What's your next philosophy song going to be? Uh, wait, <laughs> explain to me the philosophies of each of them. <laughs> we'll do that in, in the sequel, uh, the second hour of Pop. I'll go with Hume. What is it, the Hume Hustle? The Hume Hustle. I think it's a very good choice. We'll try that one out. It, it's... Uh... You can okay, ask Professor yeah. Brown. He can explain that. So question number four is for you, Grant. Uh, as I understand it, the two of you met in Ms. Greco's biology class. 
which of these okay. alternate timelines would you most like to live in? A timeline in which Grant and Ted meet in French class and start a famous restaurant, or when Grant and Ted meet in phys ed and become star rivals on the fields of the NFL? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, we're, we're definitely in a different universe if the two of us are NFL uh, caliber <laughs> athletes, but um, we did... I mean, yeah, we've over the years we have faced off on the field before or on the the court, as it were, basketball or whatever. So I think, yeah, I think I would, I would rather. I'm not sure how we would do as restaurant as co-restaurant tours. Um, so I'm gonna go with like rival athletes. I think that'd be fun. So somewhere in pop life and the multiverse of madness, we have Grant and Ted uh, getting ready to play the Super Bowl. So finally, a question to both of you. I'll start with you, Ted. If Generationals could headline one major festival, would you pick Coachella or Lollapalooza? Ted, which would be your choice? Lollapalooza. <laughs> I knew it. Grant, are you are you going to concur? Absolutely. No, no question. I think it's just so much more important to like our generation. Um, I mean, if I could really just go to go back in time and be on the like the '94 Lollapalooza, like the touring mm -hmm. version of the of the uh i mean i guess it's stationary now they just do it in chicago but it used to be like a tour and it was like you know whatever uh jane's addiction and and uh red hot chili peppers and everything yeah absolutely i would i would sell everything i have to be to do that for one summer and be like on the tour that would be great well we will look forward to seeing you both on tour so our final question for you is always for our guests on pop life is what is in your pop life what are you listening to watching binging enjoying ted what's the center of your pop universe these days I, you know what? I don't know. I've fallen out of the forefront of what's going on. I mean, I watched some new stuff. At some point, I found myself in this rabbit hole of like uh, someone was doing these top 25 of the 21st century films. Hmm. Have you seen any of those lists? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where we just start to consider the 21st century and like what are the great films that have come out since then. And I've, I've tried to been building that list for myself. So I've been revisiting a lot of older stuff lately, especially stuff that came out in like the earlier 2000s. Because we all know that like, AFI top 100 of the 20th century. It's like, okay, yes, we know it, but I'm kind of interested in what sort of rises to the top in this new century of film. So I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not right at the edge of what's brand new lately. I'm kind of excavating all of the 2000s so far with regard to film. Nice. Any, any of those 2000s films that really stood out and made you say, wow, I'm glad I rewatched that or I'm glad I visited. I mean, I can pull up my list if you were really asking. Uh, let's see. Gladiator, <laughs> Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Wet Hot American Summer, E2 Mama Tambien, 28 Days Later. I mean, the list goes on. There's been some good movies made in this century. Yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Grant, what's in Inside your Inside Davis. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Good Coen Brothers movie. Absolutely. Yeah. And as for me and my pop life, is that where the question is now? That is where the question is. Do it. Do I have the floor? Okay. Um, <laughs> but also musically, I would like to shout out um, Caroline Rose, who's a great artist that I've only recently been exposed to, but she has a new record out called The Art of Forgetting, which is really great. She's on tour now. I think she's a super inspiring new voice on the scene. Um, and, uh, and, and also there's a very new younger band that I think is just kind of getting going called Nation of Language that a friend of mine put me on to that I think is super cool. Um, so I love to like, yeah, to see green shoots, like young artists coming up that are um, 
yeah, inspiring and make me feel bad because I'm so old relatively, but uh, nevertheless, it's good to find these new things. So I'm not just stuck in my old favorites. Well, you have been inspiring and certainly one of our favorite guests here on Pop Life. Ted Joyner and Grant Widmer are Generationals. Their new album is entitled Heatherhead. They'll be on tour this fall. Thank you both for joining us on this episode. And to our listeners, I'll say, remember, if it rocks, we'll probably be talking about it here on Pop Life. I will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes. Music